first time in my career, I had a 360 review. My manager left me with like a file, left me in a conference room to read through all the feedback. And she came back and I had started crying yeah. because I thought to myself, some of this stuff was just mean. Like, why would you put that in there? And that's also the job of the manager. You get the 360 review and the feedback, but some of the feedback just shouldn't be shared. Mm. I'm going to be honest because it's yeah. unkind or not true. But also we can't wait for the performance management cycle. Like this is what I think is so fascinating is that not giving someone the feedback they deserve is one of the most detrimental things you can do in their career. I work with leaders all the time and I think, God, if someone had just given me to that feedback 10 years ago, but people yeah. were scared and afraid. Hey everybody, I'm Lori Rudiman and this is Punk Rock HR. In each episode, we take a realistic but slightly cynical approach to fix and work, bringing you raw and honest conversations with disruptors, innovators, and even random working people like you and me with one goal, to reshape the workplace as you know it. But sometimes we take a break from all that and talk about real life like relationships and well-being and kids and animals. And along the way, we drop a few F-bombs too. Whether you're an HR professional trying to do the right thing, a leader looking to connect with their people, or just fascinated by workplace dynamics, this is your destination to fix work once and for all. On this episode, I'm speaking with Nita Malik. She's a Wall Street Journal and USA Today bestselling author of the book, Reimagine Inclusion, Debunking 13 Myths to Transform Your Workplace. On today's episode, we're talking about all of that, the myths that go into some of the conversations we have around diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging, and also what you can do to truly make a difference to transform your workplace. So if you're interested in hearing from an absolutely wonderful, interesting human being, we'll sit back and enjoy my conversation with Mita Malik on this week's Punk Rock HR. Hey, Mita, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for having me. I'm excited for our conversation today. Well, I'm pleased you're here. Before we get started, would you do me the honor of telling everybody who you are and what you're all about? Well, currently, the biggest thing happening in my life is I am now a published author. I made the Wall Street Journal and USA Today bestseller list with my book, Reimagine Inclusion, which is a long time coming. So I am a passionate storyteller, marketer, diversity, equity, and inclusion leader, and most importantly, a mom. Well, I'm so pleased you're here to talk about all of those things. And I know you're available for parenting tips. Is that true? That is true. I've got Jay, who's 11 going on 21, and Priya, who's eight going on 18. So it is a, it is a full life that I'm leading and a very blessed life uh, that I'm leading. Well, that's wonderful. Why don't we start with just an overview of your wonderful and successful book? Can you tell us uh, what it is and who's it for? Sure. My book, Reimagine Inclusion, Debunking 13 Myths to Transform Your Workplace, Gosh, it is a labor of love. It is for anybody who's looking to create a more resilient and a more inclusive organization. And there's a lot of great books out there on leadership and inclusion. And I know you've had a lot of great authors over the years on your podcast. But why I wrote this, Lori, is, is if I was going to write a book, I wanted to reach people differently. So it is similar to the bedtime stories I tell my children at night. It's thinking about these stories we tell ourselves in our workplaces that we hold on to that aren't true 
that actually hold us back from making meaningful progress. And throughout my career, as you can tell, I'm a writer, writing is therapy for me. I journaled and I actually had career journals. And so I wrote a lot of the things throughout my career that I'd been experiencing. And I went back and put them all in a book. Well, I am really curious about why you and why now. So what do you what do you have to say when someone asks you why you and why now for this book and your work and why? Why me? I've been writing ever since, as my mother says, I could pick up a crayon. So I've had very a lot of failed starts and stops when it comes to starting my writing career. And why now is I finally got a book deal. I wrote this book four years ago and I got so many rejections. Another podcast story for another time on the inequities in publishing that I experienced, but I'm not going to pretend. Yeah, I finally got a deal. Like it wasn't like, oh, this was the moment, right? Did you meet it? Did you know that there was going to be a DEI backlash? And is that why? No, no. I finally got a book deal. Let's be clear. Yeah. I love that answer. I think that's realistic. I think when you're a writer and you're driven, you jump on any opportunity that's given to you. And you're right. The publishing world is full of bias and inequity. So the fact that you finally got a deal and your book is rising at a moment where we need it is both wonderful for you as a writer, but bittersweet because here we are in 2024 having a conversation that we had in, well, we should have been having all along, but we were having in 1994 and 2004. So tell me a little bit about the moment that we're in right now. I feel really sad. I feel really disappointed. I feel really hurt. I'm sure many people can relate to that. The backlash on diversity, equity, and inclusion is real. It's not going to go away. I do see the field and the work evolving, but there's a lot of tensions happening in the U.S. right now, and I know we have a global audience listening here, but in particular, we're in the backdrop of lots of legislation that's being passed where many individuals from historically marginalized communities feel like rights are being taken away from them and they are being minimized. And like you said, we are moving back instead of moving forward. My book is probably going to get banned in Florida and Texas if it hasn't. My role, a chief diversity officer role, is not allowed in some states in educational institutions, right? Like, wow, you know, Roe v. Wade being overturned, affirmative action being overturned, all of these things happening. And then also what's really fascinating, Laurie, is at the same time, you see that, as I believe, inclusion is still a driver of the business, right? Inclusion, when you think about communities that are overlooked. Procter & Gamble tells us there's $5 trillion of spending power with the multicultural consumer alone that doesn't include veterans, individuals with disabilities, LGBTQ plus community, and more. And so you think about, wow, from a business perspective, how are you going to serve these communities if they're actually not feeling that they belong in your workforce? Like, how are you going to get those insights? And then also the demographics of the U.S. are changing so rapidly. Over 40% of individuals today in this country identify as non-white. So there's all these things coming to a head. So I don't think it's going away. I think it's changing and evolving, but I think that's where the tension is coming from for sure. You know, it would be really easy to be cynical and to, um, you know, just opt out and bury your head in the sand, but that's not what you've done. You've written a book really challenging what's happening in the world and debunking some myths. So can you talk about some of the myths that you debunk in your book and why did you pick those? Gosh, well, I started with 13. My, my son asked me, why 13? I'm like, 13 is my lucky number. Let's not overthink it. So I picked okay. 13. <laughs> and then I went through 13 things that I had heard quite often in my career. You know, one of the ones that I, I say out loud, and people are like, you said it out loud? Yes, I did. I'm all for diverse talent as long as they're good. 
I'm all for diverse talent as long as they're good. Now, Lori, I'll ask you in the audience to think about this. Have you ever heard anyone say I'm all for non-diverse talent as long as they're good? And so that's a lot of what I do in, in Reimagine Inclusion is challenge the things that we've always accepted to be true and say, well, we don't say the reverse. Like, you know, stop calling me a minority. Do we ever say majority? Like, it's interesting, right? And it's the things that we've come to accept as just to be true. You know, I love that example that you brought up because as we record this, we are currently in my old self, the HR lady would call it performance management season, right? So everybody has been evaluated or being evaluated. They're getting their reviews. They're about to get their merit increases. And the concept of good is so subjective, right? We bring so much bias and so much just misinformation to that process. So if we can be HR nerds for a second, can we talk about performance management? And I don't know any organization that's doing it right, but maybe there are some good practices or some good philosophies to make sure that we are at least inching closer to a better way of looking at talent and understanding performance. What do you, what do you think about all that? Talent needs to be a 360 view. It just can't be me reporting into you and you giving me the full view because we might have a good relationship or we might not have a good relationship, right? And then also when you get that 360 review, you know, I find it fascinating. Lori, I'll remember, never forget, first time in my career, I had a 360 review. My manager left me with like a file, left me in a conference room to read through all the feedback. And she came back and I had started crying because I thought to myself, some of this stuff was just mean. Like, why would you put that in there? And that's also the job of the manager. You get the 360 review and the feedback, but some of the feedback just shouldn't be shared. I'm going to be honest because it's unkind or not true, but also we can't wait for the performance management cycle. Like this is what I think is so fascinating is that not giving someone the feedback they deserve is one of the most detrimental things you can do in their career. I work with leaders all the time and I think, God, if someone had just given me to that feedback 10 years ago, the people were scared and afraid. So I also feel like we put a lot of pressure on this one or twice a year we're supposed to sit and have a conversation where really it should be always on. Like if you care enough about the person and you care enough as a leader that you have a privilege and a responsibility to, to help them grow their career, help them, give them feedback, give them tips. I feel like this idea around good and I'm all for good talent. I'm all for good people. I'm looking for performance is flawed anyway, because good is temporal. Good is in the moment, right? Good is subjective. And also good is in the eye of the beholder. So I wonder if just this idea of assessment of talent in general, whether it's in recruiting, sourcing, performance management, career development, right? It, if, if there's a different way to think about this philosophically, why are we always striving for good and the best? Is there is there a different way to kind of look at the way we assess talent? Well, two things to what you're saying. One is, you know, we talk a lot about, particularly I would say in tech, most of my career, we talk about meritocracies, not a term that I coined while researched and well-documented. It's like, yeah, because you said, I know what good or best looks like for me. And so guess what? It's not a meritocracy. It's a meritocracy. I'm creating a fiefdom of metas based on what I think good looks like, right? And so I want to tie that back to something really practical that happens a lot. And this is, I talk about in my own podcast with DC Marshall called Brown Table Talk, facts versus feelings. We have a lot of feelings, right, about people and things. And so we could be in an interview and guess what? I'm interviewing you, Lori, and I, oh my God, 
you also played lacrosse at Stanford? Two years after me? I think I remember you. And then wait, you also summer in the Cape with your family? Right. And so guess what happens? It's affinity bias. We end up most of the interview just talking about things we have in common. We actually don't talk about the job description. We don't talk about your experience. And then what happens when we go into the the debrief? And I sit in on many debriefs over over my career. And it's like, Laurie's just amazing. Well, what's so amazing about her? Well, she played Stanford at lacrosse. And she also vacations right. You're like, did you have a conversation with her? And what happens is, I will tell you, when somebody who has more power in that interview debrief comes in, with an overly positive view on Lori, that it has actually nothing to do with her work experience or her expertise, most people will stay silent. Lori will get hired. Well, let's talk about another myth that you debunk in the book. What's one of your favorite ones that you're happy to talk about today? Oh, gosh. Now you're asking me to pick between my kids, but I'll do it. Which one is the? There's one that I was nervous to write about. I mean, listen, the whole book is I was going to be courageous if I was going to write this book. But the one that I've been pleasantly surprised to get such strong feedback on is why are you asking for a raise? You and your husband make more than enough money. And that is really around pay inequities. And one of the myths I wanted to debunk is that white women and women of color don't negotiate. We often do negotiate. And when we do negotiate, some of us are gaslit, minimized, and dismissed. And most companies, I want to say, are doing the right thing quietly. Most companies are doing pay reviews. And you as an employee would never actually even know that, whether you're at a public company or a private company. It's really me, Mita, as the manager who comes in and wreaks havoc on the system because I have biases. I'm like, why is Lori asking me for a raise? Shouldn't she be grateful? I like that myth because I also think that women do know how to negotiate, but we also have to negotiate all sorts of other aspects. And I know you're passionate about this. We have to negotiate work-life balance. We have to negotiate time away from work. So it's not like we're negotiating dollar for dollar. We're negotiating for all the subtleties, all the complexities that go into what it takes to have a job and to be productive. So when you hear that women don't know how to negotiate, do you want to scream like me or do you actually find yourself doing something more productive. I mean, I know you wrote a book on it, but what is your gut reaction to I get really angry. I get really yeah. angry. You know, I, I had somebody not too long ago, a really large executive search firm, I won't name them because they're very prominent, call me for a really large role. And I went through the process. They were chasing me and I gave them my numbers. And the recruiter, Lori, says to me, the executive search firm recruiter, wow, you're highly compensated for what you do. Huh. Huh. And I said, well, you're ex-search firm and you're trying to fill this role for a public company. And I know that you will get a fee along with placing the individual for whatever salary they're going to make. And this is what I've earned and deserved. Now, this is the new me and the evolved me who could say that very quickly. But it's so, so disheartening, so disheartening that I know this happens to many women. So in the process of debunking these myths, you do offer hope and you do offer optimism. So I want to make sure that my own bias towards the negative doesn't creep into this conversation. So what makes you hopeful about the world of work and what makes you hopeful about individual employees? My children, all of our children, that's why I do this work. I don't want any of our kids to enter the world of work I did. It wasn't a world that was created for me. And I think that's changing, particularly with the new generations entering the workforce. And there's a lot of tension. You know, Edelman 
who I talk a lot about in the book, they have the trust barometer survey. They've researched this for over two decades and they talk about what's happening right now in this moment is that many individuals feel a loss of trust in government, no matter what your views might be. And more and more, they're looking for their employers to stand up for what they believe is right, their values. They have a lot of trust in them and that's a huge responsibility. And so that makes me really hopeful. The world is changing and it's not when I grew up where my dad, I would say, had his tea and toast, read his newspaper, went to work, came back and screamed at my brother and I to get off the six o'clock cartoon show so he could watch the news, right? That's how he got access to his news. Like there's no line right now where work ends and society begins. That line is gone. And so I think there's this, oh gosh, a lot of tension because a lot of leaders still want to be leading in the old, old ways in which many of us grew up. And I think about your role as a leader in the world of work, and one of the most important things I see you doing is modeling the good behaviors. So whether it's through this book or through your leadership at Carter or just your thought leadership in the public space, you're really trying to be the change that you wish to see in the world. But I know that's an extraordinary burden to put on one person who is both fighting the system and also really affected by the system. So I'm in a lot of ways, impressed that you're so optimistic. I mean, you're more optimistic than I am. You know, a lot of times when I ask people what keeps them going, why are you optimistic? They'll throw a lot of company examples at me, like company, this company's doing it right and that organization is doing it well. But that's not how you answered the question. You started with your children. They make you optimistic. Is it because you don't see the change that you wish to see in the global corporate landscape? I think for too long in my career, I was waiting for someone else to do something. I was waiting for the CEO. I was waiting for this person, that person. We all can be the change we want to see. And it's the ripple effect. I mean, I'm humbled and grateful, and I've built a very large community on LinkedIn. And I'm so, oh God, I'm so touched when people write to me and say, your story inspired me to write, or your story inspired me to go ask for more money. Your story inspired me to make a career change. That's what stories do. They inspire and they transform. And so I also, as we sit in this moment, I want my kids to ask me 10 years from now, like, what did you do in this moment? Um, what did you do to try to make this world a better place? And so that's, that's really important um, you know, for me. And that's how I'm trying to lead my life. One of the really interesting things about your career is that you're both a writer and a DEI leader. And I work with so many people in the world of work. They're in marketing, they're in sales, they're in HR, and they have these big ideas around fixing work but they don't know where to get started or they don't have the bandwidth they feel to get started. So how do you talk to people in the workplace and encourage them to get their ideas out, encourage them to be creative and inspire them to take a swing and to fix things themselves? That's a great question. And this goes back to my marketing training. Storytelling is one of the most underrated skills in business. And so if you think about something that you're trying to solve at work, what's the data around it? What's the data and the insights that you could maybe pull together? If you believe you don't have enough leave for parents, for example, like what's the data around that that you could pull? What's happening externally? What's happening internally? Okay, what are some of the insights and what's some of the action that you could propose? And I've been in companies where, wow, it's amazing when it's actually not someone in the people team who comes up with a proposal to extend parental leave. Guess who it is? It's generally somebody who went through a less than ideal experience, right? I had this at a company where a friend of mine 
who became a father, he put together this massive proposal. He watched his wife, who was at the same company, go through a less than ideal leave experience. He was also going through it, and he was able to enact change. So like I say, I think sometimes we wait for someone else to do something, and the insights are sitting with us. So just start by solving something small that you're seeing every day. You know, I'm struck by how many people don't call themselves storytellers when I think generally everybody's a storyteller. So what do you think about that? And how do you encourage people to find their inner storyteller? I don't care who you are. If you're in the world of business, you're selling something. We are. We're all selling something. And you might not like that word. Maybe it's spreading awareness. It's enhancing the quality of people's lives, benefiting them in some way. But we all are trying to share what we're doing. And so that's really what storytelling is about. And there's different levels and versions of it. But everybody loves a good story, don't they? I certainly do. And so stories can really capture people's attentions, their heart, their brain, their head. And they're like, oh, wow, tell me more. Especially in a workplace situation, you might think, oh, storytelling. And you're like, yeah, but like, how am I going to increase parental leave? Probably by telling a powerful story of someone who had a less than ideal experience. And you hear that and you're like, I don't want anyone to go through that. How do we change this? Oh my God, now you're showing me the data? There's all these other people who also went through this one person's experience? That can't be how we're going to lead here. And so I want people to think about that. Like it can really spark interest and change. Well, in your day job, even today, even in the recent past, can you think of an example where storytelling has really helped the organization move forward? I mean, something recent in the recent past would be amazing to hear. Recent past? What about... um, Many companies are focused on helping their employees family plan. And so thinking about going from a family planning model that was just U.S.-based because your company is headquartered in the U.S. and that's kind of the best model, but you're a global company and you're expanding and you've acquired different companies in different markets. And so there's a big case there. How can you have family planning benefits only just for one part of your population and not for all. And so what I what's also really interesting, Lori, is our stories are constantly being rewritten. So what might have worked today, in a year from now, you look at how your business has changed. Oh, the story has changed. So what I once sold you on or said, hey, this is what we should be doing no longer works. We have to think about it differently. So I want also people to think about that, that things are changing pretty quickly. That makes sense. I mean, there's this constant exploration of what's happening within our organizations, right? And to your point, the story that was good in 2022 during the height of the pandemic may not be serving the organization today. So it's this constant need to evaluate what's happening in our workspace and make sure that we're telling the story we need to tell to move the business forward. I think asking Business leaders to be storytellers, though, can seem so onerous because they have these day jobs, right? And they have these lives that they're involved in. So does storytelling have to be a big burdensome thing? Or I don't know, how can we make it natural to the way that we operate? It's not a fiction novel, right? It's like when you think about storytelling, it's it's grounded in data. You're going to find data and insights about something that's happening at work that you want to change. And then you're going to build a story off of it, right? And you're going to maybe start the presentation with the story of how when Mita went on her first leave, she came back to a really low performance rating because they told her that uh, the business had fallen off of a cliff. Uh, Yet she didn't work for six months. So what does that mean? So, okay, that's the story. And then actually let's pull the numbers to see how many 
let's say particularly women who have gone on leave, who have gotten low ratings during their leave. What's that about? And actually, you wouldn't be surprised that a lot of, a lot of large companies might be doing this, especially when you have a bell curve, a forced bell curve. And there's a recency effect. Well, Mita's been gone for six months. Her business is tanking. We're going to give her the lower rating. So do you see that's like a very quick, like you start with a very personal story. You know, it's the insights as we call them in marketing, right? It's like the, the consumer touch point of, you know, and I say our employees are forgotten consumers. So go back to them and ask them how they're experiencing their workplace. They'll have a story for you and something that you can change. Well, as I read through your book, I was thinking that you have so many lessons that are baked into the book for aspiring HR professionals. So can you talk to me a little bit about emerging careerists right now in the world of human resources and what you think they need to be paying attention to and what advice you would have for them? I think one of the biggest pieces of advice I would have for them is to understand the business and how the business runs right? Because no matter what we're doing, we need to understand how much we're selling to who, what, where, and why. And so I think being grounded in the business and understanding how you're making money helps you build a relationship to be a trusted advisor. I think that's like one of the critical pieces of advice I would give. And having come from marketing, I just don't know any other way to do it. <laughs> I was built that way to understand, like understanding how to read a PL. Yeah. So I'm going to ask you about that because there is this, um, common piece of advice that HR professionals get to understand the business and know how the business makes money. Do you think that advice still stands in 2024? Because I got to tell you, from Gen Z through boomers, I don't know any HR professionals who don't know how to read a P&L because they wouldn't have the job that they have if they didn't know how to read a P&L. So I'm just pushing back a little bit because I think most HR professionals understand at least the core of the business that they're working in. They they understand how the company makes money. I think sometimes for me, what I've seen is that HR professionals hit a bias. And it may be because the industry is predominantly female. There are a lot of underrepresented categories in HR. But there are a lot of reasons why I think people don't think HR knows the business. But I don't know that to be true. What do you Think about that. I think that's a I think that's a great pushback, but then maybe they're not doing a great job of telling the story. Well, there you go. So this right. this may be that's probably so. This is so. So I, I actually don't. I mean, I'm. You asked for advice, so that's the advice I would give, and I would actually give that advice to somebody who, let's say, was in the legal function as well. Like I'm thinking about different functions, right? Like you know, you should be at every town hall. You should be at every quarterly review. You should be understanding no matter where you sit, what are your CEO's top three priorities? And like, how is that different? Because guess what? We just got acquired or we missed our target. Wow. Things are really going to change for us year. But I like what you're saying too. It's like, maybe they're not positioning themselves when they're actually talking about partnering and solutions and proposals that they're actually going back to, Hey, do you remember our CEO said these three priorities have changed for the company? And as a result, we're showing up differently and changing our priorities. So that's the Yeah, I like that. I also like this idea that maybe no matter what we do in human resources, we're never going to be seen as business partners. There is just something fundamentally broken potentially or something fundamentally broken about other people that makes them bring all of this negativity to the world of human resources so that no matter what we do, no matter how we try to fit, no matter how we try to code switch... Anything we do is still going to be met with resistance. I don't know. What do you what do you think when I say that? It makes me so sad because I talk to my husband about this a lot. It's like the people function, the human resources function is the most important function. Like when you're starting a company, 
you want to figure out who that partner is going to be, who your chief people officer is going to be, because it's so interesting that this divide between the company and the people, the people are the company, right? Like the people run the company. And so that does make me sad. And I do think things are changing. We're seeing the benefits of, of uh, human resources and the people team. Yeah, I do. I, I mean, I'm going to listen. We already talked about this. I'm, I'm a half glass full person. So I will, I will stay optimistic. But I do think that's where the storytelling opportunity comes in. I think that's well said. Well, as we start to wrap up the conversation, I'm really curious about some emerging trends that you see for 2024 in the world of work. We know that there's a backlash against DEI programs. Uh, What else are you seeing both optimistically and potentially uh, challenging? I think the continuing, the pendulum swinging from five days a week to remote Right. I think you're going to see that continue to be a battle for, I don't know, the foreseeable future, because as soon as wherever you think the market's market is right now, as soon as the power goes back to the employee and I have the choice to work where I want, I'm going to choose to work how I want. And so that that will not I don't see that ending in the future. I mean, listen, the caregiving crisis in this country is real and I can't scream about it probably because I've lost my voice over it. And I think we've stopped talking about it. But our infrastructure for childcare, for paid leave, all of these things continue to crumble. And so we were talking a lot about it during the pandemic, and it's still, it's sort of gone quiet. I know more women have reentered the workforce, but not at the rates that we would expect. And so I still think that will continue to be a, a big uh, shift in in how we work. And then I think the final piece is, listen, I think you will see a bifurcation in the market that continues. You will see companies like famously like Basecamp and Coinbase who say DE&I does not exist here. We don't talk about politics. We don't talk about social justice. You might have Patagonia and Ben and Jerry's and other companies on this side. Like Again, employees will go where they feel like they're seen, valued, and recognized and where their values match. And so you'll see the market, I think, start to shift in that way as well. Well, hopefully it shifts in a way that... Um puts economic pressures on certain organizations to either uh, adapt or to go away. That's my goal. That's my hope for 2024. I don't know about you. I would agree with that. Yeah. Well, it was so wonderful to have a conversation with you today about your book, about your work, about your perspective of the market. If people want to learn more about you and also read your book, where can they go? Thank you so much for having me on the show. Reimagine Inclusion, Debunking 13 Myths to Transform Your Workplace. You can find it on Amazon or your independent local bookstore. And you can find me on LinkedIn and you can find my podcast, Roundtable Talk, on Spotify, Apple, Amazon, wherever you listen to podcasts. Amazing. We'll include all of that good stuff in the show notes. And once again, thanks for being a guest today on the show. Thank you so much. Hey, everybody. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Punk Rock HR. Show notes and more can be found on punkrockhr.com. This episode was expertly produced by Emerald City Productions, and we would all appreciate it if you left us a five-star review. So go to wherever you stream your podcasts like Apple or Spotify or iHeartRadio and leave that five-star review and your thoughts on the episodes themselves. Now, that's all for today, and I really hope you enjoyed it. We will catch you next time on Punk Rock HR.